0: Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, we are uh, wrapping up this series, Rooted in Hope, and uh, we've been discussing this reality. This idea of hope is not about wishful thinking. It's about a way that we choose to look at the world. It's about a way we choose to see how the universe really works. Uh, You know, theologians and philosophers, they call it a worldview. How do you see the world? How do you think about what's going on? If you think about the mechanics, if you think about the logistics, if you think about whatever philosophical and theological underpinnings might be a part of the world, what do you see and how do you see it? And we're thinking about what that looks like today, because I'm not sure that even as we gather as people of faith, that we, that we really set ourselves into that space in such a way that it gives us hope. I think we see the things that go on on the surface of this planet, and we allow those things to influence uh, what's happening inside of us. And a lot of us go around feeling like there's not much hope feeling like, and I hear this over and over, man, the world's a mess. Man, the politics are a mess. Man, the pandemic is a mess. Man, like we're surprised by all of that. Like it hasn't always been a mess at some level. Like there isn't a biblical story that suggests that there's something sort of broken inside human beings that make them long for and need things that drive them to do selfish things and greedy things. And until we come to a moment of saying, God, I think I'm messed up and I need you to heal what's broken inside of me so that what I desire is to be like you instead of satisfy whatever hunger happens to be bubbling to the surface at the moment, as if we should be surprised. That the root of the problem lies within human beings who pursue some sort of self-actualization and some sort of self-fulfillment instead of finding that real meaning comes to surrendering ourselves to a greater good, to to God Himself, if you're a part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so we allow this stuff to get inside of us. And hope comes from seeing the world in a specific way, a way that, that allows us to see that things are growing, that we are being pruned, certainly, but we are being pruned so that we might bear great fruit. And it is a courageous way of seeing the world. It is not difficult to be an atheist. It's not difficult to be an agnostic. It's easy. You just live in your feelings. <laughs> It is difficult to have faith. It is difficult to hang on to a world view that is rooted in other than. It's not rooted in what you see. It's rooted in a belief that this is how the world got here, and this is how the world works. It's faith, and faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is simply saying, I choose. I choose to believe this because I believe it is what makes sense, because it creates something in human beings that must be dealt with. And I don't know what else offers a remedy for this thing inside of us, except the idea of a loving God." Who sacrifices so that we can be reconciled, so that this can all come together again. If you've been around very long and you've heard me talk very long or you've hung around me very long, you know that I store an incredible amount of trivia in my brain. Uh, if you've hung out with me, you know how painful that can be, that there's a lot of stories and there's a lot of information that you neither want nor enjoy, but you often get it anyway. And so one of the things that happens to me is that when I read something, I usually retain it. It sticks around for a long time. But along with that comes this reality that I I don't always put things in context. I, I remember things, but I don't always remember exactly where. So as I was thinking about this sermon and this topic, the idea of choosing and believing in security over separation. It reminded me of three stories. I knew the three stories were written by Bob Benson, and I knew that I had read them, and I, I believed that I knew where they were found. And so in preparing, I thought, well, I'm going to tell these three stories, uh, and I, so just let me go reread them really quickly so I got all the facts, you know, and all the details correct. And, and so I started looking for them, and I, I came to realize that these three stories were actually, I, I thought they were all told within the context of the same book. The truth is they're in three different books and they're unrelated in how they're told. But in my mind, they they all fit together. So here they are, and you can decide how they fit together for you. So the first uh, little story that happens uh, is, is simply this idea that Bob tells a story about. He's going to speak. He's speaking on a college campus. Uh, you know, he's speaking in chapel and all that stuff that goes on. And and then he said, uh, somebody came to him and said, hey, would you come over to the guy's dorm tonight and lead devotions? The guys are going to get together and would you come and lead devotions? He's like, sure. Now, you've got to date this. This was back in the 70s. And so uh, Benson said he goes to the dorm room, goes to the dorm hall, and they all gather out in the big lobby and And somebody brought a guitar along and they start to sing some choruses. And they started singing an old song. We don't really sing it anymore. Maybe you know it. It's a little chorus called God is So Good. And it's just simple words. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. And and so what's great about the little chorus, if you've ever been around that campfire singing that song, is you know that people can throw out ideas for verses. You know, so you can just kind of throw out your own. And so Benson says they're going around the circle and people are singing things you know, uh, he answers prayer, he answers prayer, he answers prayer, He's so good to me. And then somebody said, God is not dead. And so they sang it, God is not dead, God is not dead, God is not dead, he's so good to me. And then Benson said, I spoke up, and I said, he's not even sick. (laughs) And they all laughed, and I said, no, no, you got to sing it. So they sang it, he's not even sick, he's not even sick, he's not even sick, he's so good to me. And Benson says, "I I I looked at that group, and I said to them, you all believe he's not dead, but you do think he's sick like he's feeble, like he's barely hanging on. Like your faith is big enough to say, yeah, I don't think God's dead, but I'm not sure he can handle what's going on in my life right now. I'm not sure he can handle what's going on in the world right now. I love that story. I love that story. I, 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 I like to think about what it means. It seems like sometimes we behave like God is going to get shut out. He's going to get shut out of the church. He's going to get shut out of his word. He's going to get shut out of the politics. He's going to get shut out of the world. He's going to get shut out. He's, he's kind of weak. He's kind of weak. Second story, the Living Bible. Uh, Benson tells the story that in 1973, the Living Bible came out. And the Living Bible was a paraphrase of Scripture. It was an effort to make the Scripture more accessible to people, and in so doing, uh, it was not a translation, Uh, Translation is a word-for-word rendering of the oldest manuscripts. It was a paraphrase. It was translating ideas instead of words, if that makes sense. And a whole bunch of Christians were super upset by the fact that the living Bible was coming out and we were changing God's Word. And Benson says, I don't know if you're very upset about a new Bible coming out and you want to protest, where would you go? And he says, in my local town, they all went to the Baptist bookstore. And he said, I drove by and here's a bunch of people out in in front of the Baptist bookstore and they're carrying placards and they're protesting the release of this new Bible, the living Word. And Benson says, "I, I just drove by thinking, do you really believe do you really think that God is going to get shut out of his own word? That a bunch of people with all of the right purpose and meaning who are trying to make the word more accessible to people who can't handle the these and the thou's, do you think somehow God's going to get shut out of that process that he's so weak? Even though the word says whether whether the Word is sown in integrity or whether it's sown in mockery, still, God's going to get good out of it. Do you really think God's that weak? Third story. He talks about the fact that for a lot of us, we seem to think that God lives in a box over at the church. That, that if you want to see God, you got to go over to the church and visit him. And he said more than that, he said, really, in a lot of churches it seems like we don't just believe that God is over at the church. We believe that he actually resides himself in a little box down front. And so if you really want to meet God, you could be in the room, but you got to come down front. you got to come down here to really meet God. And sometimes we even bring people and we say, hey, why don't you come to my church and let me take you down and you can see God. <laughs> And Benson says, somehow we believe that God might be fragile, that he's got to stay over at the church and he's got to be boxed up down front because if he ever got loose in the world, he would hurt himself. <laughs> he, he would be wounded. He'd be upset by what he sees us doing outside these walls. He'd be upset about what he sees going on outside these walls. And so we keep him down front. We keep him in a little box. And what we believe is that God resides with the good folks. He resides with the good guys. He, he resides with the people who have it together, who understand, who think like we think and look like we look and, and believe like we believe. And he's over at our church and he's in his box and we keep him there. And Benson says, that's what the Pharisees did. And when God showed up in human flesh, he refused to get in the box, and he kept hanging out with the bad guys instead of the good guys, and the good guys couldn't stand it. And he kept drifting over to where the bad guys hung out. And he said, if your God lives in a box like that, then your God is too small. And I've just been thinking about this as we think about security over separation. God is not dead. He's not even sick. And He won't be shut out of His Word. And He won't be shut out of His church. And He will not be shut out of the politics and the policies and the structures that reside on the surface of this planet because this is my Father's world. This is His house. And whether we sow it in integrity or we sow it in deception, he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to use even that stuff. And so a bunch of people meaning well, trying their best, navigating to the very best of their ability. You think God's going to be shut out of that? We sure act like it. We somehow believe if we don't preach it just right, if we don't get it just right, if we don't have all the right proclamations about it, that somehow God's, God's not strong enough to allow His grace to be made perfect in our weakness. And so we get angry. And we fight. And we post things on the internet that ought not ever get posted by people who call themselves by the name of Jesus Christ. Because it's not Okay. It's divisive and mean and vulgar. And he invites us into a place where we don't believe in a God that's sick and weak and being overwhelmed by our politics and our issues and our culture. That's not the God we serve. The God we serve is powerful and almighty, and nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So that's how those three stories fit together for me. In Romans 8, as he comes to the end of that chapter, Paul is beginning to talk about a personal part of his life. Now, a lot of people believe and sort of treat these verses as if a great persecution has broken out in the church, and Paul is addressing that, and so when he talks about you know, not being separated. He thinks, you know, people will speculate, well, he's writing to a group of people that are under severe persecution. No, Uh, most scholars believe the timing would be really off for that. that, that this letter is written long before that real persecution breaks out. And so he's not really addressing current circumstances. Certainly, there's a lot of things going on, but he's telling a very personal story. Because whatever might be going on in the mass of the culture, Paul has become sort of a lightning rod of mistreatment because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's talking about a personal testimony. He's talking about what he's been through and what he's learned in that process. So listen to what he's writing. He's very upfront about it as he writes the letter to the Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.10, We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. We were cursed. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this present moment. 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that His life might be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. 2 Corinthians 6, 4. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in endurance and troubles and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and riot and hard work, sleepless nights and hunger and purity and understanding, patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love and truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul does suggesting that you and I find a place in our journey, in our life, in our current circumstances, in the personal things that are happening to us, in what's going on in our culture and in our world, in which we celebrate the security of our lives in Christ, instead of always feeling like we're on the brink of some great disaster. God's not dead. He's not even sick He will not be shut out of His Word. He will not be shut out of His work. He will not be shut out of His creation. This is my Father's world. He will not be contained in the box of our own making. He will not allow Himself to fit in to our concept of Him. He will continue to challenge our concept of Him to open up and embrace the breadth and the depth And the width and the height of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is his world and he's active in it. Do you live like that? Do you tell your inner world that? Do you remind yourself that the circumstances in which you find yourself at this moment, God is at work? He's not weak. He's not sick. He's not overwhelmed. He's not surprised because I really believe when it comes down to it, that's the difference between choosing security over separation. It's how we think about this God we serve. Paul is writing in many ways in this passage to countermand the popular belief in the Roman culture. So just for a, a minute this morning, You know, let's think a little bit about what Roman culture looked like at that time. Number one, Roman culture was paganistic. That is is to say, they believed in gods and goddesses. And they didn't just believe in gods and goddesses. They believed that these gods and goddesses interacted with human beings and regarded human beings as their playthings. That, in fact, what they believed is that they were sort of... uh, you know, egotistical and indifferent that the gods and goddesses were having their own world and their own culture and their own life and their own hobbies and their own things. And the only time they really bothered with human beings is when they found them to be somewhat playthings. And they toyed with their lives and they made difficult things happen. And sometimes they helped and sometimes they didn't. And Paul is talking about that. And people in that paganistic culture believed in the volatility of the gods. They always talked about displeasing the gods. They didn't believe they were terribly powerful to help, but they thought they could make a big mess. And I don't know about you, but that's a depressing way to live. It's a depressing. Like, they can't do much good, but they could do a lot of harm. And if we're honest, some of us have a theology like that like God can't do much good, but He could sure be displeased and create a lot of wrath. Number two, Rome was superstitious. Superstitious to the point that people walked around all the time taking all kinds of precautions so that their worlds might run smoothly. The average Roman person in the Roman culture, not necessarily born of Rome, but in the Roman Empire, believed that the stars dictated their lives. That when you were born, your life was tied to a star, and that star determined the course of your life. They lived in a deterministic fatalism. If your life is going badly, it's your star. Not a lot you can do about it. It's your fate. You just have to live in that reality. There's not much hope. Between the stars dictating and the gods playing with you, there's not much hope for you. Either you were a chosen person to have a good life, or you were not a chosen person to have a good life, and there's not much you can do about it. into that culture, Paul writes these words about a God who is faithful even when we are faithless. A God who loves us, who doesn't wait for us to make a mistake, but who intercedes and encourages. Number three, Rome was pluralistic. That means that they believed in all kinds of... No need to exclude any kind of belief that was to come along. And here's why they believed that. They believed that because they were in this situation where their fate was tied to the stars and, and, and to uh, the... the Uh, fickleness of the gods. And so they believe that in acquiring new systems of belief, that somehow if they honored all of those, that it might help appease the gods and give them a way forward. So they became more and more pluralistic. And it turns out that as they think about this pluralistic process, that Paul comes along and he begins to say to them, what I proclaim to you is the sumum bonum, the highest good. Yeah, I hear what you say about all of this stuff and all of these pluralistic beliefs, but what I want to hold out to you is the light. What I want to hold out to you is something that is better than the highest good, the most loving God, the most efficient, powerful being. And if you tell me that this God needs to have another attribute, then this God has that attribute. This is the highest God. This is, in the language, Almighty God. Paul is speaking into that pluralistic. Rome was pantheistic. The divine was everywhere. Everything was animated by some divine force. And that sounds like a beautiful world to live in, except that that also meant you could transgress the gods and anger them in very simple ways. And because people were so afraid of getting it wrong, of somehow displeasing the gods and having wrath on them, they began to value being open-minded more than being true. I want to say it again. They began to value being open minded, even if what was being open minded over was wrong. They would rather be open minded than right. They would rather be open minded than smart. They'd rather be open minded than wise because the highest value was to remain open-minded, because God was everywhere, and you never know what you might do or say that would be displeasing. So by all means, just don't say anything. Just let it all happen. Just stay open-minded. Paul's speaking into that culture. Finally, Rome was elitist. So the Romans believed that in this great open-minded culture and world, only a few people really get it. Only a few people really understand. Only a few people are sophisticated enough. And the rest of the people are sort of undesirable. And so only a few people had Roman citizenships. Only a few people could make the decisions. Rome was a democracy, but it was a democracy that was based in an aristocracy. Here, everyone gets a vote, but only these people get to really vote. Only these select few who get it. Only the enlightened. Only the intelligentsia. Only the people who have had their minds illuminated in the right way. Only the woke deserve to speak or to lead. Into that culture, Rome, Paul is writing these words. And into it, he is telling a story. And listen to this about a God who humbled himself into this elitist world. He tells the story of a God who, being in very nature God, did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became a servant and obedient, even unto death. That's what's going on in this collision that now Paul speaks into in Romans 8. Let me read it to you and share three brief thoughts, and we'll be finished for today. Romans 8:35, With all of that background in mind, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, our hardship, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our danger, our sword? So Paul, into this very diverse culture of Rome, is is highlighting three things in this list. And here they are. We are not separated, number one, by disasters of this world. We are not separated from God's love by the disasters of this world. He makes a list. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or swords. We could put our own current words. Afflictions, politics, pandemics, hardships, peril. Nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God. That somewhere, Paul says, if there is trouble anywhere, God will be right there. He won't be lost. He won't be confused. He won't be shut out of the process. He's not too weak. He won't be overwhelmed. I I just... If you just stopped for a moment this morning and you said, what makes me so anxious? What makes me so angry? What am I so upset about? What am I afraid of? And then you said to yourself, God's, God's not going to be stumped by that. I, I'm not going to be separated from the power of God and the wealth of God. And so what he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's not, he doesn't mean he's getting, he's not separating us from the warm fuzzy He's, he's, he's holding us in space that is safe and secure. Love is not just about warm fuzzies. It's Valentine's Day. Listen, Valentine's Day is, about, is way about more than giving flowers or candy. It's about providing an atmosphere that's safe and loving and good and kind and nurturing. It's about making sure people get fed and clothed and have a roof over their head. This, this, this sort of idea about love that is just sort of this, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's a movie. <laughs> and because we treat love like that in our human relationships, we think that's how it is with God. I just want to feel better. Well, God wants you to be better. He wants you to have a whole life. He wants you to live in a space in which you understand that God, in all things, is working for the good, the highest good, the greatest good. And when we start to think that this world... And the things in it and the disasters that go on can separate us from the secure, providential care of a loving God. We have started to believe something that is untrue. we got to get back here into this space in which we understand one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all, Father of all, in us all. And what unites us is far greater than what separates us. Number two, we're not separated by the things that are beyond our control. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any other powers can separate us from the love of God. Death can't ruin it, and life can't ruin it, And then he says, angels and demons can't ruin it. (laughs) That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? I mean, we get the demons part. We don't really get the angels part. In Paul's day, the rabbis taught that the angels were not how we see them. In fact, uh, the, the rabbis had taught for a while, and if you want to ever do history on the prominence of angels, Um, There is a story to be told. But by the time the first century rolls around and the New Testament begins to write, the concept of angels had become this, that the angels were very upset at God for His love of human beings. That, in fact, that God had shown mercy and given the law and had given His providence So you can imagine the idea of God tabernacled in human flesh, sending His only Son to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world, how that would play with the angels. That the angels then would be incredibly upset so that the vast majority of people who had any sort of Jewish background or teaching would believe that the angels were a lot like the pantheistic gods of paganism, that in fact they were very fickle and they were angry a lot and they would hurt you if they could. And that's what Paul is addressing in this moment. He's saying to them, I'm convinced that nothing, nothing beyond our own control can separate us. We're still going to be held in that place of great love and grace and safety and care and providence, and we ought to feel like it and act like it and speak like it and love like it and post like it and we ought to be committed like it, and we ought to serve like it, because it matters. It matters in the real world, and it matters in real ways, and it matters to the advancement of the Kingdom of God, that we don't believe that God is dead, that we don't believe He's sick, that we don't believe He's getting shut out of His Word, or of His church, or of the world He created. We ought to talk less, Pray more and have faith and root ourselves in a sense of security over separation. Number three, he says we are not separated by fatalistic forces. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Paul specifically has in mind here astrology. So what he's speaking of is this idea within the Roman culture that when you are born, you are assigned a star. So when he talks about the height, he's talking about when your star is at its zenith. So when your star says, and folks, we're still doing this, by the way. When your star says, this is a good time for you, you should go do some things. You should invest some money or find a companion or whatever. When your star is at its height... God is not confounded by that. He's not controlled by that. He's not, that has nothing, that has zero to do with the providence of God in our lives. And then the next thought is, and when that star falls to its depth, when your star says don't get out of bed, don't do anything, cover up, you're in danger, the whole world's falling apart, your stars are against you, Paul says it doesn't matter. That that does not affect the love relationship and the secure place in which you stand in the presence and providence of God. And so you and I are invited into this reality. Away from this idea that our choices, our beliefs, our future, our lives have been predetermined, that in fact we are in a place in which as we get up every day, and we say, you know, God, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. That We, in fact, are invited into that new life every day. And that new life makes a difference. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And as we close out this series... I just want to review a little bit with you. We're invited to be rooted in hope. We're invited to choose freedom over failure, to choose living over dying, to choose sense over suffering, and fulfillment over frustration to choose an advocate over a judge, and grace over shame, and security over separation. Can I ask you as we close out this series and prepare our hearts for Advent, if you were to just ask yourself right now, what is it that I feel really separates me from the love of God? What happens to me? What causes me so much anger or anxiety or fear? What makes me want to lash out? What makes me feel hatred towards others or anger or whatever we want to call it, animosity towards others? What is it? God's not dead. He's not even sick. He's not going to be shut out of His Word, and He's not going to be shut out of His work, and He's not going to be shut out of His world. This is my Father's world. And the people of God are not supposed to be blown around by the things that are happening on the surface of this planet. By the age in which we live, by the current moment. By pandemics or politics or social problems. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the cure for all of those things. We're not striking at the branches of dysfunction, we're striking at the root. Be made right with God, confess your sins. Seek Him instead of everything else. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. Be citizens of another kingdom. A kingdom unaffected, a Savior unaffected by what's happening this minute, this day. And because you're safe and secure like that, then go love your world. Go love all the people in it the people who think like you and look like you and act like you and believe like you and the people who don't? How will God's grace ever be demonstrated? How will it ever get into all of those nooks and crannies? How will it ever fill the voids in our culture and in our world if we keep God in a box, the box we made? That God is too small, too inefficient. You and I, we are bound by the love of Christ. whatever you're journeying in and whatever you would say this morning, this is what causes me pain. This is what causes me to feel separated. I want you to know this. There is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God, would you help us as we respond to your word? And we sing these very powerful words that are so very true We confess, we repent. We we prepare our hearts for this Lenten season because there's a lot of things from which we need to turn. Would you help us to turn our eyes back to you? To see nothing to the left and nothing to the right but Jesus only? May that be true of us. Hear our responses and hear our prayers. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.